Good morning and welcome. This episode is about to get started. But before that, a few things you should know. First of all, this show is brought to you for free. To support, please consider sharing the episode with your friend, leaving a great review or signing up for my bi-monthly top five email. What is it? It's a free email that I craft twice a month and send out to thousands of you where I share what inspired me recently, books and film that had an impact on me, but also gear and tips and things I've been thinking about lately that really impacted me in a way. If you too want to join in on the fun, please visit ptl.fm forward slash top five, T-O-P five, and you will be in for the next edition. Now, last but not least, all podcast show notes are available at ptl.fm forward slash podcast. Thank you so much for being here and let's get started. Good morning and welcome to the podcast, everyone. I hope you're having a beautiful day and that you're ready for yet another episode of the Pierre T. Lambert Show. Today, we have another incredible guest. I know all my guests are incredible lately that has pushed boundaries both in my life and in the restaurant scene. And you'll see exactly why in this podcast, where we're going into the restaurant scene to actually talk about creativity and photography and, and a bunch of things. I honestly think there is a ton to learn from my guest today, and my guest today is no other than Michael Muser. Michael Muser is a director of operations and owner of two Michelin stars restaurant ever in Chicago with Chef Curtis Duffy. Michael is a 30-year veteran of the restaurant industry and an accomplished sommelier. Food and Wine magazine named him Sommelier of the Year in 2014, and Muser has worked side-by-side with Chef Curtis Duffy since 2009. Michael and Chef Duffy opened Ever in 2020 and Ever earned two Michelin stars for its first few months of service, although it was in the middle of COVID. We'll get to that. It's a pretty intense story. His previous two restaurants with Curtis Duffy Avenues and Grace earned two and three Michelin stars respectively. If you're unfamiliar to the Michelin star rating, three is literally the same growl, the 0.1% of the 0.1%. Michael has hosted the annual Jean Banchet, I'm trying to mix like French and English pronunciation awards, and lend his support to talents to the Grand Chefs Gala, both of which benefited the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation of Greater Illinois. In the 2016 documentary for Grace, filmmakers chronicled the creation of Chef Duffy's former restaurant with Michael, including his role in its journey from concrete box to opening night. It's streaming on Amazon Prime and YouTube new movies, and I'll link it in the show notes. Really, really great documentary. I highly recommend you to dig into, especially after that talk. I think you'll get excited about it. So Michael is also an avid motorcyclist and photographer, which is exactly how our worlds came to collide. Michael, thank you for being here, for taking the time. Your time is so precious. Your industry is crazy. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, man, it's an absolute honor to be on your show. Michael, okay, can you just give us a brief, brief understanding of how our worlds came to collide? Because you're the initiator. You're the spark of that. How you and I collided was that a long time ago, when my chef partner and I first got together, I very much kind of saw what he was doing is like this really fun kind of artistic factory. And every few days, this really cool food idea would come out. And you'd be surprised at how many things like show up and then just disappear like days later. And you would go into the kitchen and be like, hey, where did that go? That was delicious. That was elegant. That was pretty. It was, you know, this pink on this yellow. And, you know, who could not look at some of this stuff and be impressed by it? 
and it just disappeared so quickly kind of bothered me. And so I got a camera, which has been the bane of my existence ever since, trying to get good at this damn thing. I fell down a rabbit hole and said to myself, listen, it's, it's on me to make sure that each one of these pieces is seen in the way that my chef partner wants it to be seen in all of the ways that it's special and beautiful and unique. I need to figure out a way to capture that in a photograph. I mean, man, when I started this nonsense, we're talking like 15, 17 years ago, Facebook was like waking up, like it was just becoming this platform for which you could take these, what we would now call NFTs, you could take these little pieces and show them to everybody. And really that was kind of the game, right? Who's good at taking beautiful imagery of things that you create and putting them up on a regular and consistent basis to show everybody what's going on inside your tiny little box. It became relevant immediately that tonight on the books, we might have 50, 60 people in the dining room, but I can take a picture of that thing and 5,000 people will see it before we even open tonight. And that was special, right? That was kind of unique, like back in its day. It's almost sad to think about it because like I hate Instagram so much now. I get so frustrated because I think I feel like so much of the stuff you put up now doesn't get to the audience that you want it to get to. The people that you want to see your stuff, I sometimes get frustrated. I don't think that they're seeing my things and I want them to see it so badly, but I'm not in charge of that stupid algorithm. So I'll take a back seat that's uh, above my pay grade. But that's how... My life and, and taking pictures kind of got started. And then since then, I've just become obsessed with photography and photographers. And in turn, as YouTube has grown up and that YouTube space has been filled by people like McKinnon and you, you guys are inspirational, man. You give us a voice and we come to you when we need to figure things out. And we come to you when we're exhausted from taking pictures and being buried in Lightroom for seven hours a day. And, you know, we all love to listen to music and drink coffee and fuck around with photos. But like, my God, sometimes it just gets so much. And then you turn on YouTube and you've got a 30 minute video on what to do when you're banging your head up against Lightroom and you just can't seem to want to pick up your camera today. So I went after you because I, of course, started a silly podcast and the people that I admire, I fight for them. And, and uh, uh, I fought for a conversation with you. Stupidly, I didn't send you an email like a normal person would. I just started DMing you on Instagram incessantly until you responded. And why? Because I love photographers. I love photography. I love what you do. I love what the community does. I just think that photographers are it. They're our most worthwhile humans to have walking around the planet sometimes. They really are, man. <laughs> I would say it's chefs who feed us, but... <laughs> <laughs> They're important too. They're because important have too. you seen the hungry photographer? Isn't that pretty? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is exactly what happened, guys. So I received a dm and, and i was like who is this guy and then i saw that you sent me like five dms before at different times and i was like oh he's persistent which is great if anyone wants to get a hold of anyone you need to be persistent in a way and that was something i remembered and then obviously we struck a conversation you're like come on my podcast and i check your profile and i'm like but he's the manager of a three-star at the time Michelin restaurant or I can't remember exactly the sequence of event and then I'm like this is so confusing but I love it <laughs> let's just go with life and that's how we got to meet and your story like and 
what we started digging into was just incredible. I was like, oh my God, this is you doing something in an industry, like pushing the boundaries in that industry. It's beautiful to see. And, and there is that connection point with photography because you love photography, you share really good photos. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, I actually went to shoot in the new restaurant. We'll get to, do, to that in a second. But this is how this, let's call it Chicago and friendship started because we're both here and we're both trying to push what whatever we're doing. Yeah, 100%. That for me, it's uh, I've now lived in this city for a minute, 20 years or so. And I've always said that anything that I've ever wanted, the city has given to me. It's made me work my tail off for it and suffer endlessly. But Chicago has provided me that. And at every turn, even if you have to make it up, I make up Chicago community. There's, there was no real Chicago community between you and I, but I swear to God, as soon as I found out you actually lived in Chicago, I'm like, it's over. This guy's on my podcast. There's not a way. This is not fair. He can't live in the city I live in, and I don't know this guy. He's on YouTube. He's going crazy. I just, so immediately I was like, I don't care how many times I have to DM this dude. I want to have a conversation. I demand to have a friendship with this person. And, and however, and you know how friendships are these days, right? It's all, it's all online most of the time anyway, right? You probably have really good friends checking in with each other digitally, texts, likes, comments, yeah. you know? It's that, yeah, that's exactly true. I remember you were like, wait, you're in my city. You're shooting on streets that I walk every day around the restaurant. Like, how come yeah. I've never run into you? I'm like... I promise you, I wouldn't be able to name the exact video that you did, but that was a straw that broke the camel's back. You made a video when you were in front of my restaurant. And I'm like, no, stop. Like, he can't be walking around the neighborhood and not come in. Like, it's just too, it just didn't make any sense to me. And so I made it make sense. I'm like, this is over. I like taking pictures. You live in Chicago. There's just no reason why we can't build something, right? Yeah, and even if we, I wasn't in Chicago, I highly encourage anyone to to reach out or like, yeah. I, I try to respond whenever people are persistent enough. Uh, <laughs> that's the other part of it. That That's like, and I would say that too, like you want to get like on the real world side of it, I'd, have sent, I'd still be sending you DMs. And for sure, when you do that, there's no offense. Like you can't, you throw that out there and you know, it's a message in a bottle and, and, yeah. and maybe it gets picked up and probably it won't. And you can just keep pushing. Persistence will win the day eventually. Absolutely. Okay. So Michael, I have a bunch of notes and questions and I'm trying to guess where we're going to start because there's so much that we can dig into the stuff that relate to photography, to the, just the creative mind and to how you, you work with things. Let's just go with something like, let's step into feelings first. How did it feel? Do you remember the moment when you guys got your three stars with the Mishnah? Oh yeah, for sure. What was it like? It's, um, well, it's just as you described it. It's like a very, it's a very small percentage. So you know, you, everybody's filled with opinions these days, but math seems to rule the day. And when you realize, I think at the time we were like one of 11 restaurants in the United States of America. In the whole country, you're one of 11. So right away, it just takes a minute for all that to kind of, you know, those numbers to kind of sink in. And then for sure, I would hope that the next big set of emotions and, uh, was just an onus of responsibility. You know, not to bring it back to the Chicago thing, but instantly you're like one of those things that makes a city proud, not just 
It's, you're not just a business anymore. You're not just a restaurant. You're, now it's like a thing. It's a thing that stands out. What does three Michelin stars mean? It means excellence around every corner. It means precision around every corner. It means perfect first or die. Straight up. Like it's, those environments are not for everyone. Lots of people think they want inside that. They're like, oh, that would be the shit. That would be so awesome. I, I couldn't wait to get in there. Like, no, you don't like that. You're going to stand, you know, food runners stand like, like nutcracker soldiers, motionless for like 10, 15 minutes at a time, and then immediately are called into play and have to move like rocket ships. You know, but almost in the way those Tron motorcycles move in the first Tron, where there's just, you know, a left turn is an immediate hit, right? They move in that way, but prior to that, they're completely just sedentary. They're just motionless. People think they love that kind of stuff, but the, when the rubber hits the road, these are very difficult environments. And when you get that third Michelin star and all that starts to sink in, that this is not a game and these standards are made of concrete at this point, you feel a sense of responsibility for sure. Yeah, there's some glory there. We threw a raging party that night. It's definitely even the most cynical of humans for which I usually find myself being. You go, wow, this is, a, this is big. This is crazy. Like, this is a really, really, really big deal. I can't imagine. And the reason I'm asking is, uh, can, can you just give us, imagine I'm told, like, not Marin, but a uh, lame person, not lame. I can't find my word, but imagine I'm totally outside of anything restaurant. I don't understand what three stars are, what two stars. How would you describe or like find a parallel to describe a no star with a normal restaurant with a th two and three stars? Like Totally. I'm somewhat good at this. I get asked to do it a lot, right? To kind of like break down what goes on inside of our restaurant. I come from pretty normal surroundings, right? So my parents, I usually like to talk to my parents in my head when I'm trying to describe what's going on because my dad does not Are you kidding me? You know, he would look at a scenario like ours and go, why on earth would someone pay that much money? Because kind of <laughs> well, that's you didn't what it grew up with 16 to, right? silver spoons. <laughs> yeah, right. No, not at all. You know, you take the average Joe or Jane, and I think what boils it down for them in the basic terms is it costs this much to have dinner there. And they go, whoa, you know, what, what would be that? Well, I don't even understand what's going on inside of there that would cost that much money. Here it is. If you think of it from a standpoint of like a concert, you're walking into a venue, we're calling it a restaurant, and on stage, we'll call the kitchen, is an artist. And look, like all artists, we agree that they're good at what they do or they don't. Like, look, if you don't think that that artist is that good, then don't go see that concert, right? But sometimes artists rise up and they go, oh, everyone, like on a level, everyone's like, that is a voice to be heard. Now, this isn't music, this is food. So they're saying this is a culinary voice to be heard. This is someone who looks around each season, grabs amongst the ingredients, and puts things together in a way, in a tasting menu format, that I would say, think of it as an album. And just like an album gets put together from, an actual, from, a, from a real musician, a ballad is followed by a rock anthem, which is followed by this song and that song, because the album is a story from beginning to end. And so it's not dinner, because it's a story that's being told through some artists making culinary pieces that come out song after song. And some of them are pop hits and just taste delicious. And some of them are cerebral and weird and ask you to step outside your box and maybe rethink what you think isn't great. You know, like maybe it's an off flavor to you or whatever. 
And in a normal day, you'd be like, I don't like it. But on this day, you're going to dig in and go, why did they do that? Why did those two flavors get put there? I, I don't understand that. It's that experience. It's that you're showing up on a night where this person's going to play this album and you're going to eat it. And then on the other side of it, from the service standpoint, you're surrounded by an army of ninjas and every single one of them will take a bat to the head for you. doesn't matter what you want. You're going to get it. It doesn't matter what move you make. There'll be someone there to assist. And we're not weird about it because we're just hiding in corners, staring at the room, just waiting for you to need something, right? Excellence in service, I think often in restaurants, will sometimes just boil down to the very simple anticipation of the need before the need's actually requested, right? So you and I are sitting at a TGI Fridays and your Diet Coke is run down to the bottom and you're now slurping the Diet Coke because you're like, ugh, right? But if your Diet Coke were to get like down to the last 20% and then boom, another one shows up with like a fresh piece of lime in it, you're like, this place is the bomb. <laughs> Service here is on point. What's going on, right? Your need was answered. You didn't even need the next one yet. You didn't even have the opportunity to ask for another Diet Coke and it just showed up. My job is to do that like when you get out of the cab. Find ways that three Michelin star motto carries with it the onus to just blow you away all night long with what we simply around here call wow moments, right? Just go over the top where you stop and find normal's not okay around here. And no one comes to this place, to our restaurant, just because. I mean, some people do, but they're very special. Most people come to celebrate. Most people are here for a big reason, you know? And I used to say pre-COVID, that like the city of Chicago had 20 billion restaurants. Now there are less, but there are still a lot. And as a diner, you can choose any one of them. And the fact that you choose us at our audacious prices, at this price that it costs to put this show on, you chose me? No way. Can you give a, for people a, a, like a price range of like what, what their experience investment would be like? It's like in the high 200s, like 285, like three Michelin-starred restaurants ar around the globe. Well, it kind of depends on where you are. But yeah, they go from like, we're around that 280 to 325, 350. We float around that, that area. It's become crazy from the food cost standpoint, right? As everyone knows, uh, the inflation and the, and the supply chain thing have wreaked havoc with everyone. But for sure with the food produce industry as well. And you'd be shocked at, What a banana costs, and you know all these things that come in the door. You're like, are you kidding me? Yeah, it's it's been a little funky. I was reading actually an article about that banana. <laughs> they're like, maybe they're still charging you the same, but look at the other items. <laughs> yeah, or like uh, Alaskan king crab legs, insane. Like they're so expensive. And when you ask why to the supplier, the supplier chain was telling me that no one's fishing right now. They can't get people to go out on the boats. Hmm, interesting. You know. Yeah, plus the fish shortage in general, that doesn't help. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who does it might be a good thing for the fish. <laughs> I know. <laughs> They're all resting and, and, and like having babies. Well, remember when COVID's first hit or whatever was like in that first 90 days and there were these photographs coming out of Venice. Yes. And the channel water was crystal clear. Oh, it was beautiful. I remember. Yeah. 
I was eating those photos up on Twitter. I was trying to find everyone I could because, you know, everyone that's been there, you know, that water is, doesn't smell very good. It's, you know, it's like, so to see it so beautiful as a picture taker, I was like, oh, I'd have eaten that up. <laughs> that's insane. Okay. I've had the privilege to eating at the restaurant and for anyone who's ever wondered, it is an experience. And that's why I love to have you on the podcast because it's something that a lot of people forget, you know, in photography is when you interact with others you're actually giving them an experience, right? And that's something I took from you a lot through our interaction and even that being at the restaurant, I was like, oh my God, how do they create such a welcoming ambience, but not in a pushy way where it's like in your face. No, it's it's like you said, it's like it's here, you just thought about it and it's here, but not in a, hey, you got to get this or, you know, it's it's just like seamless. And it made me think about even when I used to shoot with my clients back in Paris, when I was doing weddings or portraits, I'm like, it's all about the experience the client gets. You know, the photos is the cherry on top of the cake. But if you have a great experience, you'll probably get great photos unless you really suck with your camera. But then you're not a, you should probably start training there. But that's the difference between a great photographer that gives you a terrible experience and that you're going to be like, oh, this was, the photos are great, but this was so, I never want to work with this guy again. Or, or the people who are like, oh, all my friends have to work with you because you're so good, you know? And when they say good, they don't mean just a photo. I think they mean the interaction. And what what do you feel like this level of excellence actually takes, even from a standpoint, because th there must be someone orchestrating that experience. And how do you think about it And when it comes to the restaurant? And what, how would you translate that in every day? Are you asking, like, as far as what it takes to do it every day? To get no to get the experience for people to that level for the customer, like how do you guys even think about that? Like going off of what you said, it's obviously about the chef, yes, and it's obviously about the food, but no, it's not. It's not about the food, right? It's just like you were saying, the pictures are the cherry on the top, and that's basically how the food is. That's done. Like I can't control that. The artist plays his music. I'm. I'm. No. No one like. If someone says, I don't like this dish, I'm like, well, okay, that, you know, you went to the museum and didn't like that art piece on the wall. What it really is, what the experience is enveloped by and soaked in is that what I always tried to lead with was that what you kind of mentioned, that sense of like warmth that you get in this, let me put it this way. The dining room is sexy. The chairs are like black leather. The tables are made of this like amazing, like matte black material. Like everything around you, if you're a normal person, you're like, Jesus. And if you're a photographer, place, you're like, oh my God, this is so photogenic. <laughs> totally. You're like, I'm going to hit this. You're like, there's beautiful millwork and stuff. And we really went to town on the room. I don't need to dump anything more on top of that from the intimidation standpoint or from the shishi la la standpoint, I don't need to shish it up. The room is tight. The waiters wear nice suits. From there on out, this is a simple process. I am here to love you, to care for you, to serve you, to meet you with a sense of Midwestern hospitality around this environment that for sure is badass, <laughs> like, and is edgy and modern and clean in all the ways that it's supposed to be. But we remind the team all the time, if you go out and pay this much money to have this lavish experience and you don't have fun, what is that? 
Like, you didn't have a blast? It's the first thing you should say when you leave. And the food is not a part of any of that process, right? That's all about experience and warmth and connection to your client, which again, is exactly what you just said. Your connection and experience with your client on a shoot, the photos will be what they are, but their experience with you and that bond that you build takes about two and a half hours to have dinner at every restaurant. That's a fair amount of time for me to expect my captains to develop some semblance of a relationship with their clients at the table, right? And also, too, we go, a kind of a fun note people love to know on the Michelin-starred front, is at a particular level, it was expected of us to kind of know something about you before you walked in the door. You're not coming to me for anything normal. So for sure, when you book, we check out your Instagram page if you got one. We check out your Facebook page if we got one. You give you a quick Google. And, and see if there's any way we can bend or twist this experience in an expected fashion that'll benefit you. Maybe I go to your Instagram page and you're like a huge Prince fan, right? And that's all you do is go to Prince stuff. And I have a captain on the floor that's also a huge Prince fan. They're not going to say anything. They're not going to do anything. But there's just a symbiotic note there that when we're leading into service and I read to you and I go, Pierre, at 730, the Johnsons are coming in. And fun note, Mr. Johnson is a huge Prince fan and has been to the museum like 12 times. It immediately, as the captain, your bell was just rung, right? Something there. You're not just waiting on anyone now. You're going to wait on this person you're expecting to come in the door. And that goes not just to just likes or whatever, but you're a principal at this high school. Okay, well, cool. But what high school? What community? Where in Illinois? There might be someone who went to that high school. That would be a thing, wouldn't it? Like, yeah, these are just things we're expected to know at a particular level. So it sounds like you're seeing people like not like clients, but just like people with their own story and who are coming to see you and just spend time with you, just like you would for friends. You know, you wouldn't invite anyone in your diner, right? It's a house, man. And you're inviting all these people into your house. So you do all of those things that a good host would. I, I keep thinking like, damn, what if you created that for like portrait sessions or whatever? And like you had a, I imagine you need a team to like pre-orchestra. Bro, I walk into experiences every day wanting to redo like all of it, all of it. Like I want to go to work in the auto industry as like some sort of like hospitality guy to like redo the experience of buying something like that. Right. Like I, like, as you mentioned, I'm a motorcycle guy. Yeah. So I bought a few bikes, bought and bought a few bikes yeah, in my but. life. <laughs> and it's like, you go, you know, bikes are fun because they're not that crazy, yeah. you know, and within the realm of lunacy, you see people driving hundred thousand dollar cars. Like you go big on a bike and you're out 25 grand. Yes. But in my world, that's a lot of money, man. And you go and you buy the bike and whatever. And it's okay. If you're lucky, maybe you get a pair of BMW socks with your bike. Right? Like the experience, the experience of buying one of those things, it needs to be re engineered, dude. The whole hospitality side of it. And it's not that hard. It wouldn't be that hard to do it, I don't think. Yeah, But no, I, I agree with you. It's true. Like, and I've noticed the difference between Ever and other Mission Stars restaurant where we went to because Tr Trina, my wife, introduced me to it because she lived in London and all her colleagues were like, trying stuff and i was like yeah whatever my mom cooks great french food you know why do i need that uh <laughs> and then we went 
But there was always that very intimidating aspect. So you're like, oh, wow, this is a big deal. But then also the people made you feel like it was a little bit too much of a deal also, at least for me when I was there. Or it was overwhelming on the experience on the menu. Like I remember my wife literally started passing out at the dinner table and she had to be outside for 30 minutes. And then she, I'm like, are you coming back in? We're still dating. <laughs> you know, I'm like, are you going to come back in? And she's like, no, I can't. I'm like, oh, shoot. And I'm like, okay, I'll eat your dessert and we'll go. But I don't know, there were way too many dishes. Everything was ugh, too much, you know, trying too, yeah. too hard. And the difference I felt there was, as you said, the experience was more engineered. I understand that the other might have done it, but whoever is your captain or whoever is like, and you have great energy towards, you know, what making people feel welcome and that translate into the whole team. And so if you have a great artist and you, create a great venue and a laser show and everything and people dig into the experience i think it makes yeah it's it's just beautiful so yeah i'm sending you a lot of flowers here well you bring up a lot there but yeah for sure that experience on the dining realm i'm no historian of anything right i don't know what i'm talking about i, I half the time i'm doing the best i can most everything is above my pay grade but i will say that that for sure throughout the growings of the tasting menu format, this concert, right? Let's keep that analogy. Like we've all been to plays that like at intermission, you're like, Jesus, really? There's a whole nother half of this? We're gonna, like, we're only halfway through this play and I'm exhausted. I'm, I, I gotta get out of here. Or concerts that, that were disappointing in that way. This can do that too. Dinner, like you have to be very, very careful. And some people are more experimental, we would say, in that, right? For a while there, for sure, in the, I would say, I don't know, I'm scared to say years, but like, say mid-2000s, 2003 to seven, like four-hour tasting menus were not uncommon. These big, long, drawn-out, you know, my partner and I, Curtis and I, we decided a long time ago that like two and a half hours is end time for me. I am not out for that. I'm just not. So we always try and experience or drive our experience to that two and a half hour hit. But I totally relate to that whole, this is too much. Are you kidding me? It's still coming. There's, where are we at? 17 more courses? Oh my God. Oh my God. Like, I can't eat. I'm done eating. Where is this food going to go? Like, I've been a part of those. And they're disasters, right? The, the other, like, scary part about tasting menus is that the food doesn't stop coming. It needs a rhythm and a cadence. And... You know, diners are on their own as far as their timing, their cadence. The room is moving. It's breathing. It's shifting in different areas. And it's the restaurant's job to keep everyone on this kind of rhythmic note, but they want their own specific rhythm, right? And so we have systems to deal with all of that. But I will tell you that even then, it's very difficult, right? You have to have what's called an expediter in your kitchen, and this person has to be a maestro, I mean, they drive the whole thing all night long. Guys, watch the video. I'll put it in the link below. There is someone who's literally like making magic happen for everyone. It's, it's incredible. It's like a chef d'orchestre, orchestra maestro. It's incredible. Yeah, they basically, he will sit there, his job mostly, when a dish walks to your table, he clocks it. And then you eat it as a client for as long as you want, because that's you. But when we clear it, that time is also immediately clogged. Oh. And then we will come up, we'll take that eat time, right? And let's say it's like 12 minutes on first course, 14 minutes second course, 12 minutes third course. Look, we're going to work a cadence for you. 
and it's your cadence. It's not ours. We're not doing, we're, you know, so you'll have in our dining room, some people sit at five and leave at midnight, and then some people get there at seven and bail at like 8.15, right? They just ate fast. That was just their intention. Wait, I have a side question from that. What happens, let's say, if you have a couple and, and it goes south into like they're arguing? Like, how do you guys think about even the situation like that? Expo hears all, yeah. right? The expediter and that, that position we were just discussing, they have to hear everything, right? So if the table makes a move in any way, shape, or form, if the babysitter calls and somebody gets up or there's an argument that spurs at the table, for sure, Expo will be alerted. That's kind of the good, the system is built. When I say system, I mean captains, back waiters, food runners, floaters, the expediter, the chef de cuisine, this whole network of humans that are focused on the dining room. When one table blurps, celebrates, fights, gets up, leaves, a proposal goes awry, for sure the alarm systems go off. And the restaurant's aware and ready to kind of usher through whatever's being presented, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. I, I just can't help but think about that scenario. I'm like, <laughs> and, and you guys in the it kitchen, happens. give them the chill cake, chill cake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, for sure. You've, I, have, I, I would be lying if I said I have not heard in the kitchen where it's like, look, we need to pick it up on 12. It's not good. Like, this is not going, this is not going good places. So we should pick this up. This is a date, and it's not, I'm hearing things. Yeah. We need to go. We need to go. Interesting. Okay, tell, let's dig a little bit into uh, the origin story. How did you, because you mentioned your dad's not into this, you didn't grow up in this. How did you even fall into that world? Like, what gets you excited about even getting in that industry? It's so tough. Yeah, I uh, went to college, was mostly a theater geek for a good portion of my kiddom. If I ever did anything athletic, I was a bicycle guy for a long time in college. You know, I got steeped into road cycling for a really long time. That's the motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, it, it's motorcycles are literally the old man's road bike. dude. You're like, I'm not I'm not putting in 80 miles today, but I'll put in 500 on that machine over there. Yeah, for sure, dude. It's the same feel. It's, it's shocking how similar the two are. I mean, if you ride bikes competitively and then you get on a motorcycle, you're immediately like overconfident. You're like, oh, I know this game. No, you don't, but you need to be careful. Uh, but your brakes are very similar in that here. Yeah. <laughs> and then I waited tables for the longest time because you always need money, right? If you're going to be some struggling actor guy out of college or whatnot. I'm originally from California and I went to school in Northern California. And then when you graduate college, it's like, I went to school at Chico State. You know, those small college towns, when you graduate, it's like, get out of here. <laughs> They're, you know, the college is the town. Yeah. And if you're not a student anymore, it's like, oh, I should probably leave now. Because I was happy in Northern California. It was beautiful up there. And then I worked in restaurants to just basically pay bills. And I got bit by the beverage bug. And, you know, I think you get to a particular age, you're waiting tables. You're like, yeah, this ain't going to last. I can't do this forever. I became super interested in wine, fell down that rabbit hole for, oh God, years. Man, that's like a dangerous one. Be very careful because <laughs> when you make a decision where you're like, I'm going to understand this topic, I'm annoyed. I, I basically got annoyed with the idea of wine, working in the hospitality industry and dealing with it. It just became very frustrating to me. And if you set out saying, I want to know it, I really want to know it, you're in trouble because that's going to take a long time. And it did. It did. It took years and years to just kind of work my wine life out and, and hit a wall where I said, I'm done. I don't need to study anymore. 
and I need to make a living at this somehow. This Wh is crazy. Were you studying uh, on the on the side while waiting table, or how? how yeah, was it built? for sure. There, there was a Starbucks. Still is a Starbucks on North and Wells, and I had armies of flashcards, libraries of wine books, and I would wait tables in steakhouses and then go to that Starbucks because it was twenty four seven. I don't know if it still is, but it was a twenty four seven Starbucks. And you could study until five, six o'clock in the morning. And there were tons of students there. And everybody's cracked out on coffee. So nobody's tired, right? It's like three and four in the morning, Pierre. And everybody's like, hey, how you doing? What's going on? How are you today? You're like, I'm good. I'm good. No one blinks an eye at the fact that we are all vampires. And I did that for the longest of times. And then started traveling and going to places and visiting vineyards and saying, listen, enough is enough that I've not been to Burgundy. I'm not studying and memorizing another Burgundian vineyard and not have actually walked around. I want to taste the ground. <laughs> I got to do something. You got like, it's so crazy, right? It's like, it's like a mountain climber studying a mountain and be like, well, I haven't been, but I know every crevice. I know, I know every part, right? Because when you go down that rabbit hole, you end up making flashcards on top of flashcards, right? It's not just enough to know Jevry Chambertin and all the GCs, you got to at least know the top 30 premier crews. You got to know the village producers that are banging that really high end level stuff that are just kind of off radar, but they're stuck in their section of the Burgundian pyramid. They ain't never going to get out of it. So there's Jevry Chambertin and then there's Jevry Chambertin. Your job is to know those cats. How do you know those cats? Memorize them. How do you memorize them? Make another flashcard, Michael. Would you bring Go back to Starbucks. bottles at Starbucks? Sorry to interrupt. Would you, would you like bring, <laughs> taste stuff at Starbucks? Or, or was it purely theoretical in that, in that stage? Totally theoretical. Memorize, like, you, I, for me and the way my brain works, I just got to know it as platform. I'll build off that. I just need to be able to, when you say to me, hey, would you happen to know the native varietals of Corsica? I need to be able to be like, yeah, blah, 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 and just hammer it out to you. Quickly what you just, not quickly, but when you, unfortunately, when you reach the end of that road, you realize you passed the general public like six years ago. It's like, it takes a short time to get to the 90% best. And then the, the top 1% is like exponentially longer. You're an expert on Italian wine. Congratulations. Like, did, would you study it for a week solid? Like, nobody, it's so confusing. It's such a topic that the general public is walking around half the time. They don't understand Appalachian law. Why would they, for God's sakes? They don't need to know any of that stuff, right? Your job immediately becomes very clear. I have to communicate this stuff to someone who doesn't know any of it. Yeah. In a way that they get it. And fast. And the job of a sommelier, which is when I decided, look, I got to make money somehow. Yeah. I started taking sommelier jobs in restaurants. I, you know, was in hospitality, but sommelier is like an older waiter's job title for I'm not that stupid. I deserve a little respect. Because <laughs> that's got, you know, it's just like, I'm just a I sommeliers are waiters, man. Yeah. You know, they're on the floor, they're in the pattern, they're hawking. They're literally just flying around the room, eyeballing clients, seeing wine lists open, walking up. May I assist? What are you in the mood for? What do you normally drink? Would you want to step outside that box? You know, assessing a price point elegantly without yeah. ruining someone's night for their $12 bottle of Chianti they're trying to buy on their first date or some shit like that. You know? Yeah, I don't know why Chianti is so, so famous. And, but yeah, that's besides the point. I much prefer Montepulciano. <laughs> like there are epic renowned Sangioveses on the planet, you know, and then there's, you know, there's Chianti. 
there's this Chianti and then there's, there's kids Chianti. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Where was I? You, you picked up the job as a, as a sommelier. By the way, just quick question, because I think for anyone international, they might be interested. Did anyone require that you had some kind of certification to pick that up? Along the way, yes, all the time. Uh, so I studied formally with a, like a traveling circus of Canadian sommeliers that would come to a city and pitch camp and teach classroom time, which is still very, almost unheard of, right? Actual, you, I, needed, I needed somebody to help me make sense, like give me some sort of foundation, right? And so I uh, went to a conference And I met this guy, his name is uh, Wayne Gotts. And this guy was like that professor in high school where you're like, yeah, yesterday I was a theater major and now I'm an African history major. You're like, this is, I'm doing this for sure. And Gotts was definitely my guy. And so I studied with them for like three or four years and then taught sommeliers for a few years after that. Mostly because, like I said, there's nowhere to go with the information. So, like, if you can assemble me a room of 30 people that are like me five years ago and want every little squirt, then we can sit in this room for seven hours and talk about the Burgundian Pyramid and we'll, we'll destroy this place for a while. But those people are few and far between, man. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. Like, <laughs> there's only that many. Wait, so when is the first time you actually went on the ground with the wine yards and how was that experience after studying so much? Underwhelming or, or like? So most of the time when people, like when studiers go into the vineyard or whatever, you think it's one way and it is, you very quickly understand this is an agricultural product like all the others. And you are slapped in the face with the reality of it, right? I've always said that like my experiences when I'm at wineries is humbling because it, it almost becomes humorous that this Thing ends up in like this uber fancy restaurant being decanted by this like half snobby sommelier or what you know because it is literally an agricultural product it comes out of the ground man there's bugs and rats and mice and snakes and there's tractors and stuff getting moved everywhere and there's canisters of sulfur and pumps tanks hoses i mean it's you know it's chaos and beautiful all at the same time It gives birth to this universe of debate over winemakers, their hands in the product, how much is too much uh, use of particular items to make the wine stable or not. Uh, uh, winemaking philosophies, cooperage, barrels, Jesus, you swim in it, right? You just, you absolutely swim in it. Viticulture versus viniculture, what we do in the vineyard versus what we do inside the winery. And the process of making it versus the process of actually growing what's out in the vineyard. Two totally different worlds, in a sense, but universes amongst themselves, right? My experience in that world has only humbled me and, 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 and sent me back to whatever dining room I was in, like, whoa, whoa, you know? And sometimes levels your sense, too. Sometimes, you know, you make gods out of certain things, and then you go there, and you're like, oh, I get it, you know? Like, as a, for example, you might laugh at this. As a student sommelier, right, you study champagne like a crazy person. And in the deep, carved-out clay cave network uh, that sits underneath the hillside of the region of Champagne, 
the wine is stored while it goes under secondary fermentation inside of the bottle. I'm not explaining any of that. But all what anybody needs to understand is a, a sense of like a dust settlement starts at the bottom of the bottle. And there are these old men, they say, that walk around these cold caves in Champagne. They're called Riddlers. And they walk up to the bottle and shake it two or three times, turning it to the right or to the left. They have some like motion that they do. And when they're finished, they've angled the bottle up a little bit, causing that dust settlement to make its way slowly towards the neck of the bottle, right? This is the story as it's told, the ancient riddlers of the caves of Champagne. But then when you get there, <laughs> you see these massive machines, right, picking up cages of bottles that house like 900 Veuve Clicquot bottles. And they're being turned by this massive artificial intelligence machine that turns this massive, you know, box of bottles over little by little. You go one way, you come back with a sense of reality, right? You don't see all of those bottles of Veuve Clicquot at Costco by the hands of Riddlers. Yeah. It doesn't happen that way. That's amazing. It sounds like it's a, it's almost like you took that kid on that ride in Disneyland and then you showed him all the machines and like, yeah, how the characters are only half painted, you know? Whatever. Right. <laughs> no, it's, it's you know what's funny you said that? We, we just went to Disneyland not that long ago with my four-year-old for the first time. And I, I'm from California and not too far down the road. So I've been a bazillion times and I have lots of uh, uh, experiences going to that park, but I hadn't been in a while. And going back with my daughter, you're dead on, dude. You go on those rides It's just black lights. That's all they're, they're just using black lights everywhere. Like 90% of the rides are that glow in the dark paint and black lights. It just totally blinds the eye. All you can see is what they want you to see. And I was like going on these rides. I'm like, these are legendary rides. The Peter Pan ride is a legendary ride, but it is, I bet if you turn the lights on, you would just be like, oh my God. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's true. A, I love that analogy. You know, <laughs> some of the characters, Pierre, are like bored, right? They're like painted bored. It's like it's it costs like two hundred dollars to get in there now. It's just a black light with a swivel board. I'm like, what is that? It's still amazing. I love my time, but yeah, yeah. So you're deep into sommelier. You finally tasted the ground. Like it, it tastes. Oh yeah, it's disgusting. It's not what you thought, but it's cool at the same time. Uh, how do you weave into that? I ended up taking a job here in Chicago as the wine director of the Peninsula Hotel in Chicago. Exactly. Your response was kind of like why I took the gig. It was like, I kind of was at that point where I was like, look, I don't know. I, if I'm going to do this, I got to be good at it. And if I'm going to be really good at it, I got to go to one of those crazy institutions. I got to get one of those jobs. And that's where all the accreditation and stuff would kind of get you in the door. But just as you were saying before, with experience and connection, like to get a job at one of those hotels back in the day, it was like 12 interviews. You were making through that process with credentials. That's not, you're not getting through some of those people with credentials. You need to not only have the smarts, but then you need to showcase a sense of management, a sense that you can make your way working through. Hotels are big, big, monstrous animals. And I didn't really know any of that at the time. But once I got my gig, it became very, very clear that like, wow, this thing is monstrous. And I have the ability to sell a lot of wine. I mean, I can really start pushing product around. You know, a banquet department gives you this like epic, oh man, you can swing hard and just be like, well, let's sell this. 
You do that through your relationships with the distributors. You know, a sommelier in Chicago, Illinois, or in the United States, you don't have a lot of, the choices you get to choose from are the ones that are brought into your state via a network of distributors uh, who import that wine, right, into San Fran or New York and truck it into Illinois. They pay for all of that. They do the deal in Italy and buy the Chianti there and put it on the container and get it to the States and then get it to Illinois. And then I can say, ooh, look, I found a Chianti yesterday that's really beautiful. You should come and taste it, right? So when you see yourself that far down in the decision-making process as a sommelier, you're like, damn, man, you know? We've been lucky in the past in Chicago, but we've had an army of distributors that have brought like rainbows of flavors to the city. And by that, I mean like small appellations in the Loire Valley that you're not, you know, like they, they dig and they work with the right importers. But COVID has really just kind of had its way with that, it feels like, and dispersed my wine world in a, in a pretty big way. But anyway, I worked at the hotel for like six or seven years. And then it was there that I met Curtis, Chef Duffy. And he and I became friends very quickly. And that's when I really started shooting food on a, hey, I'm going to get better at this or I'm going to die trying. And from there, we split off and opened our first restaurant together, which is called Grace. And that lived for five years. And then it died. We opened a business, but we didn't own the business. And then we weren't happy. And the, the door was the only way out. We had to leave. And that was soul crushing, man like awful yeah i think a lot of people are curious i even asked you those questions offline like when around the few times we first few times we met i was like how does it work like restaurants are like venture capitalist backed startups in a way or because i know some of the restaurants are super expensive to run oh totally yeah. you have so many Completely. people <laughs> first i should say that i was listening to one of your podcasts it was a couple ago and you were talking to a friend of yours and you were talking about branding And then you had brought up a point to him where you're like, well, I wouldn't want to brand after my own name because then I'm eventually going to sell that brand. And then I don't want it to, you know, that way, this, that, and the other. And, and I had the exact same response to that comment that your buddy did. I was so happy when he said to you, he goes, oh, yeah, you think of that stuff. I don't think of that. I wouldn't have thought of that or whatever. And, and as you ask me about how, these, how restaurants get financed and how the artists are almost never the rich people in the room that have that money to go, let's get this thing started, right? That's just not, that's not how this goes. To your point and your friend's reaction, I say to you that like, everyone needs to understand chefs don't have a course in culinary school of how not to get totally screwed by someone who is well-versed in the business realm, well-versed in how to, chefs don't have Uh, how to construct membership for LLC 101, Pierre. It doesn't happen. They don't get that. I didn't get that. My dumbass graduated from college. I didn't understand. I, 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 the first one that we went through was a full-fledged lesson, the worst way to learn it ever. The, which we is the did. best, no? <laughs> which I, yeah. If you want you the know, lesson to stick. <laughs> People in business will sometimes be like, yeah, you'll live to really thank those, that person, you know, I'm not there yet. So <laughs> not yet, not yet. I have forgiveness is tough for me, but you don't get that training. And so that process for us was big lessons learned in that. And 
Sorry, back on your question. How does it get started? So we got kicked to the curb. We were down and out. So I'm pretty well versed in how to start it. And it's, I mean, you want to hear like stories, but it's get an email list together. Sit down, grab your phone, look through it, find the people that you think would be down for something like this, get an email together, a serious one, send it out, and start tapping people on the shoulder consistently. See who bites. They're not into it. They're not into it. They are. They are. And I had to hit the street. Ooh, who doesn't like asking people for money? Me. I hate it. Everyone hates it. I hate, oh, it's the worst. It feels weird. Yeah. So then eventually what happens, Pierre, is that, or eventually, if you're lucky, I guess I should say, you come up with it, you make a business plan, you hire a lawyer, you sit down and you go, okay, listen, this is what I think our deal should look like. You put a pro forma together that says what the business will produce from a financial standpoint. It's all lies. It's all assumptions, right? But you're like, look, if we do this many covers, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, this many covers on Friday and Saturday, we charge this much. This is what it'll generate. Put that pile of money over there. And then this is how we're going to divide it. That's in a document. And I give it to you because you have lots of money, right? Everyone knows you're well, you're rich. So you look at it and you go, listen, this is cute. I like this idea. What if, and I see the raise, I see what you're trying to build here. What if I come in for boom? What if I did this? Would it change the deal for me? What if I came in for this? Would it change the deal for me? <laughs> what if I came in for this and wanted to call myself a capital P partner and have a say so in stuff and be able to position myself to correct things if they went awry, right? This is divorce talk here. And it's done with lots of lawyers in the room. <laughs> and there's shitty conversations to have. But from my last experience, we were having these conversations. And these go all the way into the bizarre world of like, what if Curtis dies? What if the chef dies? Yeah. He rides motorcycles. That's not out of the question. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and he's living, so he will die <laughs> eventually. Right? What if he dies? What if you die, Muser? What's going to happen? Well, you know, who's going to run the show? Who's going to mouth off all the time? You have all these conversations. And so in, in our case, we took on this uh, legitimate partner and made our raise through other entities, through other people, and put this agreement together. And it's a massive agreement. It's got psychotic amounts of say-sos in it. They're ridiculous documents. I don't know anyone. At a certain point, like my wine knowledge, it was like super sharp. At a certain point, you could have asked me the interior details of all the aspects of my business agreements, and I could have crushed it, right? But I'm not in that mode now. I'm operating. Now, now you ask me what deliveries are coming in or what employees are upset or what's got to you know, go down to make next week work. I'm in that world. But I'm telling you, I remember walking through it and it starts there. It starts with putting people in the room and then everyone gets it. Once everyone's like, I want to be in this room, then you basically put the word fair in the middle of the room and everybody starts walking towards that word with good intention, always with good intention. But you'd be surprised how you got to say some pretty crazy shit in those moments, man. You got to be like, 
Uh, I'm going to have to dig my heels in on this one, guys. I want to be able to do this. This is important to me in this deal. What would be one or two things that surprised you the most that people wanted to say or maybe ownership over or that is something you did not foresee? That's a really good question. I mean, the knots in the rope are a many. It uh, writes over social media, right? Like the business is a thing, but it's a thing based on us. And what I do in my time on social media affects everybody involved. Now, everyone in the room right then and there, Pierre would be like, listen, Muser, don't get upset. <laughs> We all know you're a good guy. We all know you would never, never do anything to upset someone. We know that, but we also know you talk fast. So maybe there should be something in there that says if we need to, we can intervene in that way or what, you know, it's, it gets weird sometimes does, but you know, there's grownups in the room, but it's part of it, man. It's like from the entrepreneur business pushing standpoint, I've been that boots on the ground. It starts with your phone and email list, hustling, grinding, finding those people putting him in the room, pitching. Oh man, it's war. <laughs> Getting something. It, it's like, I always say it's like in uh, the launching the spruce goose, you know, just at the end of that Leonardo DiCaprio version of that, where it's just that thing, it's just so hard to get it to take five inches off the water, but got to do it. Did you feel ready when you left the peninsula to, to go on a journey like that? Or Were you seeing yourself as a manager or like director or were you like, hey, we're, you're good. I'm good. We're going to make something. I mean, I was confident in our ability to do all the restaurant stuff, but I was scared out of my brain. I had left a consistent job. I mean, Pierre, I was the wine director of the Peninsula Hotel. Okay. Like it was a nice gig, man. And I loved my family there. And To, to step out into this, what they're going to hire, they're going to replace me. I'm never going to get this gig again. I kept thinking to myself, but we jumped in wholeheartedly, especially once construction started. And, you know, it's just one of those things. And once you're on the ground, it's like, this is, this has to win, man. This has to win. This has to work. Interesting. I keep thinking about that moment where you're like, okay, didn't anything help you make that decision of, of quitting or or do you know what it boiled down to curtis my partner yeah i think that he has a way to kind of push me around pretty good when he knows he needs to he's a quite like we're all, we're everyone that you know if followers or whatever watch the documentary you'll see that like he's a guy of very few words i'm a guy of way too many so when he pulls me over and hits me with something i usually know it's important and There was no way at the hotel he was done. He was miserable at the hotel. You know, there's a downside to that whole structure too, right? It's yeah. like they're beautiful prisons. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they run you. Too. Uh <laughs> yeah, no, they run you hard. Yeah, they'll run you hard. And so he was dying to get on and, and move on to bigger and better things. And I went, so I was courageous enough to go, but I was for sure scared, man. I was like, oh man, I'm leaving a good gig here. Yeah. Yeah, and I imagine that, I mean, it's, You didn't have kids at that time, did you? No, no. thank God. Thank <laughs> if I fast forward, I, I kind of want to know something around. If I'm looking at my notes, I, I was like writing about launching ever because I remember it was so beautiful and a little disheartening at the same time when we met. I was, 
was ever open or was it like you guys didn't even know when it could reopen? And I remember, so you create that incredible restaurant and you guys like really put your heart into it. And suddenly I'm like in the podcast and you're like, no, it's it's not open, but we have a burger place here. <laughs> I'm like, what happened? Like, just give us like a quick bite of, of how the launch went in the timeline was COVID because that that impacted so badly. It's good on the photography front too. So we get started on the restaurant, right? Funding done. It's pre-COVID. Donald Trump is president for God's sakes and the economy is bullish, right? Remember back, it was weird. It's like you almost can't remember pre-COVID, but it was like everything was crazy because Trump was president, but, it, but the economy was, there was this confidence in it. It, it was just kind of crazy. So we, we, we made it through that. We started construction and I grabbed my camera as I always do. And because we've got an Instagram account and we don't have a restaurant yet. So I'm going to promote this thing come hell or high water. You're going to go on a ride with me. You're going to follow construction every step of the way. I would never go to site without my cameraman. Which I love. I absolutely love. That's something you still do now. And uh, when I look at your account, I love how you document just everything. For sure. One of my favorite aspects of what we do. So we're going along and we're building and I'm posting getting there. We've got like, you know, 15, 20,000 followers and we're not even open yet. So I'm super happy about that. And then COVID hits about halfway through construction and the world shut down in the way that it did. And, you know, weirdos like you and I hit the street and just start taking all these zombie apocalypse shots at downtown shy. Love like, it. Are, Absolutely love oh, it. Awesome. That was the best, dude. I was eating your videos at that time, dude. Cause I was just like, where's he going to go tomorrow? Cause I was creeping in alleys and you could just stand in the middle of Michigan Avenue and shoot whatever you wanted. This is crazy. I remember Trader Joe, like empty, nothing to sell. So I come to my restaurant and I'm like, where's the, where is everybody, right? Because construction was an essential trade at the time. So now it's a game of keeping the plumbers over there, keeping the electricians over there, and fighting our way through. But it weirded me out as a photographer because now I'm going to take pictures and promote this thing. This thing is a restaurant. But we are now in a world where no one really will believe you that a restaurant will ever be. Not just the one that you're building right now. Now I look silly. Now I look like an idiot. Look at me. I'm building this fancy restaurant, everybody. Everyone's like, are you? A... And every time I posted, Pierre, I was like a sense of embarrassment, like, like confusion, right? It was the weirdest thing to do, to promote it and shoot it and edit pretty photos of a thing that everyone thought it was going to kill you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if I go to, if I go there and I pay, I'm gonna die and come back as a right. zombie. <laughs> Restaurant looks cool, dude. I'm not dying to go there because I'm not. Like it was just kind of like that. It was the weirdest thing, right? So then we got right when the restaurant was done construction wise, the restaurant industry was allowed to open to 25%. 25% capacity of your dining room could be used. And uh, Chef and I looked at each other and we're like, do we, do we give a go? Do we, you know, do we do this with 25% capacity? And ultimately we went. We opened. We hired a team. We went through the weirdest orientation. I mean, this is phase one, COVID, man. Everyone was so... Yeah, we, was we didn't know. We thought we would die if we caught COVID at, one point, at the beginning. Everyone's like, oh my God. And I'm assembling a team of 33 front of house employees, 20 plus back of house employees. And we're going to talk about standards, Michelin stars, food art. 
I mean, there were parts of us that were like so happy to be there at times because it's like at least I'm, you know, we're not in our apartments anymore or whatever. But mostly, it was weird. And then we're gonna welcome strangers into our house, and how are we gonna treat them, and how are we gonna make them feel comfortable in this yeah. environment? How, where how close can you be to them? <laughs> I gotta treat you like I love you, but stay away from you. I've got to offer you hand sanitizer. Like it's just it was the weirdest thing. And then. Three months after they allowed 25% capacity, they shut everybody down again. And that's when the real pain hits because you lay everybody off. Restaurants are fully the humans inside of them. That's the end of it. Like if there's good people working towards something, you'll have good service. Without your humans, you're a done at them. And I had to fire them all, furlough them, furlough them, you know. And then they look at you and they go, what does that mean? It means you don't work here. Till when? I don't know. What? It means, it means tomorrow we're not open and you and I are not going to talk to each other for an undisclosed amount of time. None of you and I, like, I don't know what, I can't, they cry, you cry. Brutal, dude, the worst. And then to survive, we start doing to-go experiences. And that, I don't even know a shitty enough analogy to give a photographer. Can you help me with that? I mean, like, what would it be like? I don't know, dude. Imagine shooting something. You're just like, no way. I'm taking pictures of this as a job. This is my new job? Yeah. Uh, we hated it. We hated maybe it. Maybe Ikea and then, photographer. Right? <laughs> Ikea sets photographer. <laughs> Because like even, I don't know, I want to say shoot rocks, but rocks can be beautiful. I would shoot I rocks. <laughs> Maybe more like, like a, a manual to build the IKEA furniture. Here, take a photo of that piece and that piece. And yeah. I, I, anyone thinking that any one restaurant that was doing to go to survive was having fun doing it. Maybe there were. I don't know. But I didn't know any. What, was that ever experiences to go? Or was that We called it, yeah, red. we called it ever to go. And the fine dining restaurant started doing these take-home experiences where you rewarmed aspects of the meal at, at home. And they were great. I mean, my guys are great, right? So the food tasted good and it, it was what it was. But this relied on people coming to the restaurant and picking up this stuff and then taking it home. And the generosity of Chicago is only going to go so far. I mean, my gosh, this is like getting crazy. Got so crazy. We ran out of money to a level where the partners showed up. <laughs> and I have good partners, and they don't show up because they love us. And they're like, we ain't messing with these guys. And then they were like, can we talk? And I knew this was bad, man. And it's the pandemic, and it is all that it is, and there's PPP coming, but who knows when that's going to get here, and the world's on fire. And when everybody enters the room, despite our fine dining pedigree, despite our careers spent at high-level hospitality, when there's no money in the bank, Pierre, it's only a matter of minutes before someone says pizza or burgers. <laughs> that's, that's so interesting. I, I bet I can see how it happens. Dude, I saw it before it happened because I was sitting in the room and I'm like, one of these guys. I even named the one that was going to do it. He's going to say burger. And like three minutes later, we should just do burgers. I was like, yeah, here we go. We're going to do that because I knew we would. I hey, hey, maybe if it had been a, a year later, you guys would have turned into the ever COVID center. 
Yeah, exactly. So Burger might still be higher on the preference than God, man. And so we turned the word ever around, called it Rev Burger. Which is dream in French. As exactly. And Chef liked that, right? Dream Burger. He's like, that's kind of cute. I'm like, I was so bitter at the time, Pierre. I'm like, whatever. Just please kill whatever. me right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We start selling cheeseburgers and they sell to my chagrin, to my disappointment. They're selling like hotcakes, man. <laughs> and I'm then, like, oh no. This is your business lesson in, <laughs> in a minute. Burgers. Oh, look, we're making money. <laughs> I mean, it's this is the worst idea of all time. So here we go. So long story short, the pan, the dining rooms are allowed to open back up uh, a couple months later, and the cheeseburgers allowed us to make payroll, which is a big deal because three or four of these people that are on staff, I cannot let go. They're far too important to me, and so they're so important to me as a matter of fact that I gave cheeseburgers a run. Right, like that's. I just want. I was. I accepted it because I'm not losing these humans that I love so much in this restaurant. And so they open restaurants. Ever goes back to being ever. Here comes the picture taker in me. The guy across the street from us has this big building, and it's a warehouse, and it's got a hood in it, a kitchen section to it, and he offers it to us to make the cheeseburger thing move across the street. As you would know already, I wasn't really happy about the cheeseburger thing, and I've got a gun to its head, and I'm ready to kill it at any moment. But I go see the warehouse, and it's like a legit big warehouse. And immediately, I'm like, there's a scrim over there with a photography studio on the corner. For sure, I could do that. And over there is this old bank vault with these two big crazy doors, and I bet I could turn that into a podcast studio in about 30 minutes. And here, I could put a big lounge and waiting area with a bunch of TVs and stuff. And so believe it or not, RevBurger becomes this huge hero for me because it provides us an opportunity to kick a concept around a little bit in a mostly inexpensive environment where I can manipulate to take pictures, do portraits, shoot food. Like, do you know how nice it is to just have a light set up and then just put the food in front of it and not have to throw all this world together Yeah, yeah. yeah. every time? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If anyone listening, if you're able to create anything consistent, like where you don't have to think about it and you just use it, it's so freeing. It's amazing you, that you can put something down and like count on the light source and be like, I know what this does when I put food in front of it. I don't have to worry about what time of the day it is or if we're in the kitchen or in the hallway or, you know, I've spent so much time doing that my whole life. And when, you know, this situation with this warehouse isn't going to last forever. And when it goes, I'll lose that. I'll lose that little gift, but I take advantage of it as much as I can. Is it still running? Yeah, yeah for sure. It's there as long as the gentleman who owns that building is one of them Chicago builder guys, and he's got big plans for the lot, and it doesn't include the existing building that's there, which is why he's so sweet to me in allowing me to kind of like parasitically take over sections of the warehouse and build photography studios where I'm really not supposed to be. Mm. He's just kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Kinda... And to anyone in Chicago, try the burgers. They're really good. Yeah. I, I bought them after the podcast. We brought them back and Trina was like, oh, this is really good. We should get some yeah. more. And uh, a kind of a halfway secret note is the end. Like it looks like a walk up window thing, but you actually kind of can go inside and sit down now. And it's pretty fun inside. Oh, you can? It's kind of. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, for sweet. sure. You should. Oh, you should for sure come. It's like uh, it's like a demented Pee Wee's Playhouse now. Cool. I'll come inside. tomorrow. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure, dude. I got you. <laughs> it's only minus 23 tomorrow, so we're going to go shoot at the lake. I know. Oh, you know what's happy town is that I leave for vacation tomorrow. Oh, perfect. Maui. Oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> Let's see if we finally get there. <laughs> yeah, you're leaving at the right time for to just to get a breath of, of warm air and remember that life doesn't have to be so cold forever. It's going to be freezing tomorrow in Chicago, dude. <laughs> I know, we're going to go shoot. So we're, we're ever is running. And how is it running now for you guys? Is it like, are you clear? Are you back to business as usual? Now we are operating the, when the CDC a minute ago said, take your masks off, like that unleashed a floodgate of pent up. I want to go out tonight. Energy. Most restaurants that were still standing, I think, saw an abundance of that energy and became very busy, very fast. Problem is, we didn't have staffs. No one had anyone anymore. And as I told you before, restaurants are simply the humans inside them. And whether you have good or bad service, dude, it just totally depends on who works here and how much do they care. <laughs> and it got and has gotten to the point as an operator You're very unhappy all the time because talk about doing to-go food, dish pit, food running, clearing tables. Your job is whoever didn't show up today. That's your job now. And it's put a lot of the restaurants in a tailspin and just made everybody kind of like, you know, <laughs> a little salty because you're just not, and it's hospitality wide and it's not just the hospitality industry. You know, everybody knows this. Or at least I, I would hope that everyone would know that the, you know, all of our nurses and doctors just burnout is real on a very tangible level. And I see it. Sometimes it scares me when I look over at my chef de cuisine because three people didn't show up today. And the mise en place on those dishes, Pierre, it don't matter. It somebody's going to make all that. And you just, it, it gets sad sometimes, you know, now, but we're busy. <laughs> so find a restaurant person that's going to complain about being busy. You're not like, they're just, we're not designed to do that ever. Busy is not something you complain about. Yeah, it's something you deal after with. COVID. <laughs> but I, I also, but then throw into this mix, somebody in Nashville, there was like a known chef in Nashville left the business about a month or so ago. And he wrote a goodbye to the industry like op-ed in something and it hit social media and trended enough for it to pop on one of my feeds and i read it and it was devastational man because it was truthful it was truthful you know he described the daily grind of a chef people think that chefs cook they do but mostly they clean mostly they clean they fucking clean all day oh my god yeah this is something people don't see like oh my god this They think like someone else does it and, and you're like, no, like no. you cut something, you clean your knife. You cut another thing, you clean your knife. Again. It's why the pride of so many at the higher level is based off of clean cleanliness. It's why when you watch Jiro Dreams of Sushi, they did those ultra slow-mo of him washing his hands and wiping every moment. That is the epitome of a Michelin starred chef, right? You are your plus. And if a chef walks over and sees disaster, chaos, or a set of unorganized skills going down, you're going to get lit up because it's not the standard, right? The standard is to be clean. 
Oh my god, this is this is great that you mentioned Jared Dreams of Sushi because I literally finally finally watched it last week with Trina. Oh no way, really? It, it's been out since 2011. I heard it millions of times. I never ever watched it, and we finally got to watch it. I obviously went to check online if I could book a table, <laughs> knowing that we can't go to Japan. But anyway, I was like, oh my god, maybe you want? I want to go to the Brothers restaurant. I don't. I'm okay with this one. But anyway, regardless, and, and it just shows you that like dedication, that patience, that like people think they're inventing every day, but like 95%, I feel like of being like excellent is being able to repeat gesture the same way and just being consistent and disciplined. It just blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, this is exactly why I love Japan also, because you'll find that noodle guy that does the udon the same way and he's going to be like so into the udon that everything, the whole experience has to be perfect for you to taste it. You know, like don't even think about using your left hand or whatever. <laughs> it's like, no, this is how you try it. And it totally reminded me of our experience at Ever and we're talking with Trina. We're like, oh my God, Michael. And then we're like, oh, this is, yeah, this is beautiful. But again, this is things that takes so long after being good exactly. at, at cooking. And as I, when we were talking before, and I was saying a lot of people think they want to, as it would be, people think they want to be in that world yeah. and experience that. Very few actually get into that swimming pool and go, I'm down with this. This level of intensity, this level of scrutiny of everything I do in here. I thrive in this. I like this. You and I would know right off the bat just the base description of that human. There aren't a lot of those. Yeah. There aren't a lot of those. And today, due to COVID, there are fewer than ever before. So you ask me what's going on now? We're operating. We're killing. We're pushing. We're fighting. We're struggling. We need time to create. We need time for R&D. But I can't look at my team and tell them to get to work on new things when they're buried in mise-en-place yeah. in the stations that didn't show up that day or are not even there at all, right? They're just taking on all this weight. So that's my, I mean, I'm a negative person. So, you know, we're happy in a million other ways. You know, we're working, we're alive, we're here. We've survived this pandemic th thus far. I, I don't think you're negative. I, I would say you're more realistic than negative. Meaning like, like you said, there's both sides. Something that shocked me or like impressed me in the kitchen was how silent it was. When I was shooting there, part of me in my head for the YouTube video was like, damn, it's really silent. You know, I didn't even dare speaking. And I was like, is this going to be boring for the video? You know, like there's no one shouting, you know, <laughs> and it's it's just like seamless and, and like really quiet. And I was like, wow, amazing. I think it's a hysterical concept. You doing one of your videos in an environment where you're not allowed to actually talk about what you're doing. <laughs> I know. It was so weird. I was like, all right, we're going to, where should I do my intro? In the corridor? In that room? Like, but then you don't see the kitchen. And I don't feel comfortable doing it in the kitchen. I'm... <laughs> 25 chefs working in complete silence. And then you turn your camera on. Good morning, everybody! <laughs> That was a disaster. I loved shooting. And, and like I remember, I, I love the video we created either way, whether or not I could speak, which is great because it pushes me in different directions. You know, also it, it forces me to think about things differently, which yeah. is good creatively. But yeah, man, it's... I, I thoroughly enjoyed having you in the kitchen and watching you shoot because I got to just watch somebody else yeah. move and watch 
where you went, what you shot, where your eye went, what you thought was interesting, the moves you made, the shots you came out with. That was bountifully helpful to me. It was amazing. I loved it. I loved it. I'm so appreciative that you did that. I love what you're saying because it's actually something I realized is we don't have that in our in the photography world as much as you have it in the culinary world. For example, you a chef will be with another chef and see how he works. And they'll be in a kitchen with a lot of people seeing different things. But when you're a photographer, it's fairly lonely, I would say. It's a lonely thing. And if you get to work with a team, if you get to... Yes, you will see, but it's not built by design to be like very communal. And I, I feel like there is so much to be learned because you're like, oh, you use it. Like you said, oh, I didn't think you would do this. Oh, why do you do this? This is, you know. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example is that you came in the kitchen and immediately started using reflective surfaces. And I was like, how have I not? It's so clean. <laughs> how have I not done that? I don't understand. Like, and then if you go to the Ever Instagram account after you left, I like four shots of like me just using, just pulling like a, a, a stainless steel edge or something into the left-hand side of the frame and then whatever, just playing with it so that not only is the chef plating on the right-hand side, but his reflection is there. On the, it was just, uh, I immediately stole that. I was like, this guy. I awesome hope you talent. did. I hope that's why I made the videos. Oh, I immediately started shooting it. This is so fun. I, I remember Michael, I want to be mindful with your time. You probably have to pack your suitcase for Maui <laughs> <laughs> or try to deal with a million things before. That might be the latter more. I'll tell you, I'll tell you this, uh, that when I went to listen to some of your podcasts, I was so proud of you to go long format. Mm. And I was so happy to see conversations at an hour 20 plus, right? This is that. I've always believed that like this is that format. You want your 15 second dopamine whack? Go to Instagram, right? Like, uh, th there's a house for that, right? Use uh, those instant hits, but like podcast them at length is like, it's always my favorite stuff that always happens at the end anyway. But you're wired like me at the end of the day. Say, like, how, how can we even speak in like, uh, like even a 10 minute podcast? Like, okay, you told me who you are and, and what? You're supposed to give me the highlight of your life? No, I. Right. It's not you. You don't just like do peaks of mountains. You got to start in the valley. But the, the just the story, again, it's exactly why your restaurant like works and and why you guys are in that space. It's the experience. You know, it's not you're not experiencing a photo. You're experiencing the whole story of that person, and that changes completely the dynamic you have with the art in a way. I have friends who believe strongly like a bad photo is a bad photo if you don't get anything out of it by looking at it and if you need a supporting story for it. But now, and I, I kind of agree with that, as harsh as it may sound, like if I don't get anything, it's it's a photo that bad for me, not for you. If you get something, that's amazing. It's very personal. But if I get something out of that photo and now you give me an experience of the story that just blows the, the photo out of proportion and makes it even more interesting or give me context on something, I'm like, yes. Yeah, there's a couple like Instagram accounts that do these like amazing color footage of like old cities, you know, and they just they're like these like 15 second snips. And yeah, for sure. The clothes, the hats, the buttons, the vests, the shoes, the leather, like there was just so much more leather, like there's so many more leather goods back then. I love taking pictures of like old leather stuff. Yeah, that's one thing I feel like at least in France, we started going back to, especially when I went back for Christmas, whether it's the food and beverage, I noticed, especially in that, in the food scene, 
but also arts, goods, everything. There's been a like renaissance of wanting to go for art craftsmanship, you know, where people feel like, okay, cool, industrialization is fun, but I want to go back to the craft of, you know, those like small boots that were handmade or whatever, you know, like those objects that were hand made by hand and that are unique and the person who makes it has some craft that's being passed on. And I, I feel like that's why food is so interesting to me also, you know, beyond the photography aspect. It's just like you cannot do anything without that craft, you know, and you need to find it. So ugh, it's, it's really cool. Last, uh, last kind of like question, if you're okay with that. All the way, buddy. Okay. So how do you manage having kids or one kid now and that that okay maybe you can give your schedule a little bit to people like so they understand how long you guys work because i my neighbor and so just quick background sorry in france my neighbor's parents like my neighbors basically are both fishermen how do you call that in in they're they sell fish they have a fish shop they sell fish they're fishery only and they go to Les Halles, which is the big warehouse of where all the fishermen and the meat and everything comes. They find the best, just like in Jiro Dooms or Sushi, they find the best, best, best thing and they sell it. Super expensive. And their son, my age or slightly younger, went into the service industry and started, he used to wait table at the Georges V, which is the best restaurant and uh, the best hotel in the world. Not in the world, but in Paris. It's like the most expensive. Will Smith, all the Fancy people go there and it's like so tight and he would come at 2 a.m. at night and leave super early and his parents, same routine. And how do you manage with kids? Like life gets crazy. Yeah, there's the epic issue just sits in every mom or dad or like whoever. Somebody's got to go out and do something and make some money so that we can all have this roof and, you know, do things. So whether it's, you know, my wife and I both work. She takes super early mornings. She works for Lettuce Entertain You, a restaurant group. And she takes super early mornings. I do drop-offs. She does pickups. I get my kid for the morning for like an hour, hour and a half. Rice Krispies, a puzzle or two, serious connection as much as possible, and then drop-off at like 8.15, 8.30 at daycare in W-O-R-K until like midnight, and then go home and do it again. And do that five days a week, hard, and then uh, Sundays, you try and turn it off as best you can. And Mondays are bobbling about with work. You know, Monday's not an off day, but, you know, it is what it is. How do you, I mean, I don't know. I'm not managing it, Pierre. I'm just doing it. I, I don't know what else to do. You know, it's that classic, like you have a kid and you figure it out. Well, you know, I've seen some people have kids and not figure it out too, by the way. <laughs> but we, our version of figuring it out is to live at a poverty level right now so that we can pay for daycare because that is psychotically expensive. It's crazy. I, yeah, I don't, don't get me started. I know, I know. And you don't know what to do, right? Because like some of it seems like way above our pay grade, but that Child Care Act thing, I was like, that sounds like a good idea because I'm working my ass off and it's hard to pay this bill, <laughs> this child care bill, but what am I going to do? raise this child 24th. No, I have to go to work, man. And so that's my version of managing it right now. The next big jump for us is when daycare is no longer an option, which is coming around the corner, pick a school. 
oh my God. You know, I don't know where all your listeners live, but in Chicago, it's like schools one through 10 and 10 is awesome. And try not to consider a five. <laughs> yeah. If you want a metal detector and if you want the crime rate report for your school. And big surprise, if you're going to rent something or buy something near the nines and the tens, those apartments, condos, and houses are usually too expensive for you to consider. So it's like you want to get in one of, like, that's the next big thing that I will, air quote, manage with my wife in raising this kid. I would say, too, that a lot of it kind of solves itself. Like, I desperately miss my child every second I'm not with her. I even like I get scared to even talk about motorcycles because I even haven't I haven't ridden very much in the past two seasons in Chicago. It's only warm for a little while, so oh, we yeah. consider our like, motorcycle riding seasons. Oh right, right. Wait, you're not out now. I mean, I got some pretty wicked gear, but there's a lot of snow on the ground. So a kid has a way of reprioritizing how you choose to spend your time, and that's why they're the scariest things on the planet. Because I love riding motorcycles. It is my all-time number one. Like me out in the middle of nowhere on a motorcycle, it's over. It's done. I'm not going to get any happier until my child showed up. And she just knocks everything around. And she's not doing it. The worst part about it is you do it. You do it, right? As awful as it sounds. You don't go shoot. You stop taking as many pictures because your daughter's that amazing. Or you find ways to make it all work the way it did, and but it, she's fitting. She's gonna find her way because she's your kid. Yeah, it's man, you're touching such a good point. It it does uh, shuffle things around in priorities, and it's crazy. And I think honestly, I think that's why a lot of people are afraid to have kids because part of us is afraid to know we don't want to give up what we built already or like the lifestyle we have and we're like no no we i don't i don't want to deal with anything you know i, I just want to do me and that's fine but also you're training that up for an amazing experience in a way you know but i was telling my wife the other day i'm like zero to maybe 12 or 10 12 i feel like might be the most important time if you're able to like slow down on anything Because when I think about it, I'm like, okay, fine. In 10 years, I'm not going to be that old anyway, you know? But that, I feel like those 07, 010 is so, it, like, you, you I'm going to go on a trip for two weeks and I'm, part of me is scared. I'm like, oh my God, this, this is a little scary, you know? Like, I don't know how the relationship's going to change or whatever, you know? It's, and, and I'm like, I wish everyone would come with me. I don't think that trip is appropriate for that. And I, I want to make it possible for others. But so you're like, ah. How do you, you know, like, yeah, there's no good balance. You try your best. <laughs> exactly. It, it's so fun. That's why I hesitated in the beginning. You're like, how do you manage it? I'm like, oh my, in my head, I'm like, manage? I don't... <laughs> survive. <laughs> I'm just fighting for any sense of survival at this point. I will say this, right? My One of my best friends and one of my podcast partners, my buddy Pat, we have actor friends and stand-up comedy friends and stuff like that. And that's an artistic pursuit of epic renown. And And, and for sure, talk about there are certain things in life you cannot have if that is your thing. If you're going to be successful at that, you got to literally set goals and everything else to the wayside dies. Now, as you get into your 40s and your 50s, you're, I mean, I'm 47 now, to still know some of those people who have resisted the epic gravitational pull of starting a family or making a baby 
and they're still going after those goals. My buddy Pat, we, we've looked at those people. We thought, that's cool, and that's awesome. And being a great photographer is awesome. And being a famous actor would be great and all of those things. But you would be denying yourself the greatest friendship and relationship life has to offer. The greatest friendship you'll ever have. The greatest relationship you will ever have. Just no question about it. It can't compare with any. And I love my wife. Trust me. I love my wife. And I love my mom and my dad. And I bleed for any one of them. But me and my daughter? Get out of this. No way, dude. Just nothing. So the bike is great. And the job is great. And the restaurant's awesome. And right now, perfect example, we sit as a two Michelin starred restaurant, which by every stretch, Pierre, is something most restaurants will never see. But it ain't three. And so every day is not a management, but a struggle to do what I got to do and spend the time that I got to spend in my business to uphold those standards and get it to where I want it to be. And I know my daughter gets out of daycare at 4.15 and I really want to go home. I really want to go home. But I can't because, you know, my buddy Chris is in the dining room tonight and I got to shake a hand and say hi and, you know, do things. <laughs> so I stay at work at the end of the day and miss my kid exponentially. I, I wonder, part of me wonders, like, is there a way to integrate more that with our kids? Like like the work, how, how do we integrate them more into it? And I don't know if, I don't think it's possible for everyone. Absolutely not. You know, there's some jobs, it's, you, you just can't, you know. But I always ask myself that question. Is there something that I can do? You know, my, my dad traveled a lot. Could he have taken the family more on those business trips? Maybe it wouldn't have been ideal. But maybe it was possible. I know he did it with my mom a few times. What if you brought the kids? You know, would it be stupid? And then you listen to, I think it was, who was it? I think it was even Richard Branson. He's like, yep, brought my kid. And it wasn't perfect, but they were sitting with me at the table with the investors. So fuck it. <laughs> I feel like now I'm so conservative when it comes to this. But I look at me. My father was a professional baseball player My whole as I grew up. We were on the road. Those guys, their, their season is nine months long. And so my whole childhood was El Paso, Vancouver, you know, just all, all these random places, Milwaukee, Wisconsin and whatnot. We were a traveling band the whole time. I don't know why I don't see it more liberally in that sense. You know, on HBO, they did that documentary called The 100 Foot Wave of that one guy who's searching that 100 foot wave off of the coast of Portugal. He's got his wife and his kids, man. They don't go anywhere without each other. I mean, these people were traveling everywhere. They had like two or three kids. I watched in awe. I'm like, fuck your wave, dude. You're traveling with three children. I know. That's insane. They're ready to give up their things for yours. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> in, a, in a way and, in, and not, you know, but... So let me challenge you on that. How would it work if you were to bring her to work? Like even, does it work? Yeah, she runs around. I did the most awful thing. And when she was growing up, I always told her, I'm like, this is your restaurant. This is yours. This is your house. <laughs> so now she walks in. She's now four going on, you know, four, four and a half. And she walks around and is hysterical. She'll spend time in the restaurant for sure. There are ways, but mostly, brother, it's a restaurant, man. It's a machine. There's people moving and stuff. There's just nowhere for her over here. And not for that long. It could work for an hour or two, yeah, but 14 hours. 
Exactly. Yeah. And the one good thing about, oh, like having this little ecosystem we call a restaurant and, you know, is that we've got each other. So when my general manager's kid has some close call COVID at her daycare, so they shut down three rooms as a result and, you know, like 45 alarms go off on her end. She just looks over at me and we got it. It's the only way I see anything like this working in today's situation with COVID and all that stuff is everybody's got to have everybody's back all the time. Dude, do you think we're going to go to war with Russia? No, I didn't think because I don't watch any news media. So I don't even know what happens. Really? I, I don't look at anything unless someone tells me. Or it shows up in my weird feed somehow. It doesn't do me anything. It doesn't do me any good because they're just bad news media. And it doesn't add anything to my life. At the end of the day, it's minus 23 outside and I'm going to go shoot. And my daughter is here. And we have to find a way to physically exhaust her so she sleeps at night <laughs> without her freezing outside. You know, it's a, and I still want to be creative and finding. So I'm like, okay, good. Whatever happens in China right now, I can't, I don't, even France, same. The climate in France was very anxiety prone. Yeah, it was super like heavy, when, when much heavier than here. And I was like, oh, damn, this is tough, you know? And you see the medias or something a little more. I would see them a little more because of my family. I was like, I know why I don't have a watch. Because I think everything's shit after one week. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, life is better when you do not watch any of any, anything, the less you're on it. I found uh, Twitter to be a far more welcoming photography posting platform as of late than yes. anything else. Yeah, it, it picked up specifically because of the nft community it like really grew on the photographers and also it's it just looks a little nicer and you can post without thinking about your grid or like what people see i don't know it's just lighthearted. totally agree with you i find it much more pleasurable and i you know what i also like is uh and i don't think instagram does this at all maybe you could educate me on it but when someone will post something like they post like a sunset or whatever and they'll just go toss up your sunset shots everybody and everyone starts throwing up sunset shots. I think that's so much fun. And, and it, it's like a little game where oh, I'll yeah, go do you, you my can, old shit. Yes. I'll be like, let me find one. I got one. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's true. You can build a better community. That's what I always said. Even YouTube has a better sense of community than Instagram. Instagram just feels like more like robotish. Twitter feels like you're having conversation. And YouTube feels like you're having people watching and people commenting, which is nice. Where can people find you on Instagram and Twitter, by the way? My Instagram handle is photomuse, photomuse, P-H-O-T-O-M-U-Z-E. Do you have an underscore and, uh, in between or not? I think so, yeah. Am I supposed to know that? <laughs> I'm bad, man. I'm the worst. Let's check super quickly, guys. I think it Yeah, is. there's an underscore. Okay, underscore, photo underscore muse, right? Yep. Okay. All right, everyone. But I can't imagine my Instagram, like it's, uh, you know, they always say it should have a theme or some idea behind it yeah. to give people a reason to. And it's like, uh, you and I have had this conversation before where it's like, look, I shoot what's in front of me and it's either work or my kid. Yeah. So my Instagram account is useless to most people, <laughs> but you know, random food shots and then uh, my gorgeous daughter. Well, I love following you because sometimes I will see the, the photos you take with your kid or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I'm not utilizing like what I'm, doing with other people like as much with my fam and it's not 
nothing bad. It's just like I could pick it up 10% more, you know, like and, and get those good shots with, with a nice lens versus just my, my phone's great, but nothing replaces a nice 3514, you know, <laughs> once in a while. So every time I, I, know, I see yours, I, I'm like, yes, let's remember that. I always say, though, it's like every once in a while you look at your camera and it just feels like like to pick it up would be like to pick up Thor's hammer. You're just like, that thing looks like a million pounds right now. Everything about shooting, everything about thinking about shooting, everything about thinking about composition. I'm like, oi, jeez. And, and then I'll add uh, everything about thinking about the video that you're going to make about thinking about <laughs> shooting. Oh, that's why. This is why I admire you, dude. This is why I have so much admiration for you guys. For, for the stuff that you produce and for the consistency and the quality and the intensity of it, I am a massive fan because I have... I see it as it's a sport. Like this is not easy. These people producing these things, what you do, this, this takes time. It takes effort. It takes work. It takes so much focus and it's all self-motivated. There's no one around you telling you to do this shit. You do it. No, it's pretty you lonely know? sometimes. Uh, that's the one thing I miss. I miss like that you guys have with the team, you know, it's like you have the team, it's running. And, and there is those times where you can be creative. You have that space. You can like create new dishes but you can also use the dishes you made. But if I'm posting videos, I can't I can't go shoot the same street <laughs> seven days a week and, and post the same thing, you know? Like, people are going to be like, what the fuck? Uh, I, no, it has to be, I don't know, a new storm or whatever. And and I'm like, ah, damn. Yeah, but it's okay. It's working. It's working. I'm, it's, 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 a, it's a sport, like you said. It's like repetitions in a way. Michael, okay. You have to prepare for Maui. People can find you on Twitter at and Instagram at photo underscore muse. If they're in Chicago, where do you suggest them to eat? Well, you can definitely go to, we reserve our reservations off a system called Talk. So it's uh, something on there. Every restaurant on Talk is how you go to make reservations at the restaurant. Definitely do that. in. if you're listening and you're interested, do it in advance and book it way out so that you've got, they just take a deposit and then you're all set. And if you're hungry for a cheeseburger, come on over to Revburger. Outside of that, if you ask me, like, that's the wor one of the worst questions any restaurant person gets right now is where should I eat? Because you don't know, like, you're so confused. Even as a restaurant person, you're like, I don't know which one of my friends are working tonight. Yeah. And you're or like, I'm open? not a food critic. <laughs> I'm yeah, working five days I, yeah. a week on mine. <laughs> yeah. I keep all those people in my life for a reason. All my food critic friends, I tap them for knowledge because I'm so in my own box all the time. That's amazing. Michael, thank you so, so much for being here. I love it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Bye. Before you go, quick question. Would you like to receive twice a month for free my top five email. It's an email that I craft with love and passion in which I share what inspired me recently, books and film that had an impact on me, but also things I've been thinking about, gear, tips and photos that I absolutely love. If that resonates with you, if you want to peek into that universe, please join thousands of other readers. Sign up for free at ptl.fm forward slash top five. That's ptl.fm forward slash top five. Thank you so much and have a beautiful day. Remember, try something different, try something new.